This podcast is supported by an educational grant by Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. More and more, we're seeing different cancers, not just melanoma, renal cancers, other malignancies, being treated with immunotherapy. The side effects are very prevalent for these treatments, and the skin side effects are the most common. That's Dr. Ivan Litvinov, an assistant professor and the director of research in the Division of Dermatology at McGill University Health Center. He's our guest for this episode of JCMS Author Interviews, and I'm asking him to join me in conversation with regard to the article that he and his co-authors published in our January-February 2021 issue entitled Cutaneous Immune-Related Adverse Events to Immune Checkpoint Inhibitors, a Dermatology Perspective on Management. And just as a reminder, this article will be outside the paywall for three weeks if you wish to reference it and you're not a subscriber to JCMS. I'm your host, Kirk Barber. I'm the editor-in-chief of the journal Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery and a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Calgary. Well, welcome again, Ivan, to JCMS Author Interviews Podcast. It's a real pleasure to be able to interview you once again. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You're very welcome. Um, Listen, I wanted to bring alive this manuscript that you've submitted for our January-February 2021 issue. Um, It was on cutaneous immune-related adverse events to immune checkpoint inhibitors. So when I read the title, I thought, okay, this will be interesting. And then I started to read through the, and it got more interesting the more I read it, which was great. But I do find that um, the drugs I'm not that familiar with. So if you could go through that a little bit with us yeah, and that we're worried about and give us some trade names and that sort of thing. So, so out here in the community where we're going to see some of this stuff, at least initially, we can have a better understanding. Yes. So f- First, I, I just want to say that this manuscript was born out of a need. Uh, practicing in the Royal Victoria uh, Hospital, which is a major cancer center, uh, Cedar Cancer Center in Montreal, more and more we're seeing uh, different cancers, uh, not just melanoma, renal cancers, other malignancies, being treated with immunotherapy. So the prevalence and use of immunotherapy is increasing. And the side effects are very prevalent for these treatments. And the skin side effects are the most common, followed by gastrointestinal system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, also the treatment protocols for the patients with those cancers are evolving too, where many oncologists using combinations of different immunotherapies, say epilimumab, nivolumab, and other combinations. Um, and so again, this will impact the likelihood of a patient developing developing adverse reaction, skin being most commonly affected organ. When we look at the uh, NCCN guidelines, National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines on treating of uh, those adverse skin reactions, they're really not satisfactory to a dermatologist. A lot of the guidelines essentially uh, resort to a knee-jerk reaction that if they get a skin rash, to stop the treatment and to give prednisone. Uh, which, of course, it, as we discuss in the manuscript, is not really necessary. What frustrated me the most, actually, is the grading system that is put forth by the NCCN or various cancer agencies, where grade one is basically defined as skin rash less than 10% body surface area. Grade two 
a skin rash affecting 10 to 30% body surface area, versus grade 3 is a skin rash affecting 30% body surface area or more, and grade 4 is exfoliated erythroderma ulcerations leading to impairment. Well, if we talk about macula papular eruptions or a variety of other eruptions, um, I think most of them start affecting 30% body surface area or more. And they are not necessarily life-threatening, right? Our typical exanthematous uh, drug eruptions. But based on the, these guidelines, they classify as grade 3 eruption and would require uh, stopping of the treatment, life-saving cancer treatment, and starting of prednisone. And so I, we've spent a lot of time convincing oncologists that this does not need to be the case. And what we need to look at is the type of a skin eruption in front of us affecting the patient. Is it a maculopapular eruption? Is it a psoriasis? Is it a lichenoid uh, type of eruption? In which case, we can easily tolerate 30% body surface area involvement or more and resort to a variety of treatments that we'll talk about. Whereas someone developing Stevens-Johnson toxic epidermolysis, necrolysis-like eruption, even if Stevens-Johnson affecting 5 to 10% of the body surface area, they should be discontinued in treatment. So we found that the guidelines were unsatisfactory, and so therefore we this, there was a need to write this paper. The other thing that is interesting about this paper is the people who wrote it. So particularly Dr. Robert Niadetsky and myself uh, were the senior authors on the manuscript, and many in Canada know that we treat patients with skin lymphoma cutaneous lymphoma. So for years and years, we are being referred patients who have quote-unquote psoriasis, who have quote-unquote unresolving eczema, um, asking us to treat those, or drug eruptions quote-unquote unresolving, asking us to treat those patients and to rule out diagnosis of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And usually, of course, it's difficult to diagnose CTCL. It takes years and multiple biopsies. So in the meantime, when we treat the so-called psoriasis and uh, eczema and other things while we're ruling out CTCL, we always think about the drugs. Um, are they safe to use in a setting of cancer? Will they promote CTCL or other cancer? So this sort of the principle of do no harm. So therefore, it was just natural to us to look at all of the diseases and all of the dermatological arsenal to treat those conditions and screen it through, would I give this medication in a setting of active malignancy, as it happens in many of those patients receiving immunotherapy. So you can imagine uh, someone, let's take psoriasis, you know, someone with psoriasis, you know, clearly methotrexate would be a safe option to, to use or biologic or topical treatments, but clearly we would not use cyclosporin or other immunosuppressives, um, and we don't have to because we have so many other treatments. So the way we wrote this paper is uh, looking um, at the dermatological treatments and looking at those specific eruptions and with the, with the uh, in, goal in mind to do no harm, uh, to use the treatments uh, that would be safe in a setting of cancer and prepare really practical protocols for oncologists and dermatologists seeing those patients where they can actually have a quite wide selection of treatments, be it a premolast or a methotrexate, that they can give safely to those patients without needing to interrupt the treatment and without needing to put the patient in prednisone 
uh, because all, of course, those things would uh, increase the likelihood of renal cell cancer or melanoma or other cancers moving forward. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you accomplished it because as I was reading through the manuscript, mm -hmm. I kept going back to the table. Yeah. And you'd read a, a subsection and then go back and say, okay, um, how do you deal with the macular papillary rupture and Stevens-Johnson syndrome? And it was very clearly outlined. And the other thing that struck me that, that I was uh, appreciative to have in front of me was the time from onset of the therapy to the time of onset of the rash. And it struck me that community physicians, community dermatologists, are probably going to see these patients at some point in time because some of the onset was out a year from the onset yes. of therapy. And yes. so it's something that we as community physicians really need to recognize uh, when patients tell us that they received or are on these uh, on these uh, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, um, and I, I thought that was that was another nice piece of the article. So we learned we learned about the body surface area and identify and making sure that we were clear to any oncologist that we were talking to that it's mm -hmm. the nature of the pathology, not the extent of the disease, that's important. Yes, very important. That was the key message of the paper, it did. Yeah, and it comes through very clearly. And, yeah. and, and the second thing was what you shouldn't use. I thought that was, yeah. and that was clearly in the table, so the do no harm, you, you, you managed that. And then the other was the, the onset. That to yes. me, because it takes it out of the, when you first read about these more sophisticated therapies and solid malignancies, I think hospital. I, you know, I don't need to pay so much attention. The hospital guys are going to look after this, right? Yeah. And now I'm thinking, oh, okay, not so much. Well, I think the other thing is this paper is there to instill confidence in all dermatologists. It's there to instill confidence even in oncologists who may not treat skin routinely because those things are simple. Every dermatologist knows how to manage uh, a premilast or methotrexate or acetretin. So uh, do not be afraid. Just because the patient is on immunotherapy, treat what is in front of you. If you're seeing a psoriasiform or lichenoid eruption and you have a biopsy to support this, you know, pull out that cookbook and treat. So it's there really to instill confidence and patients do respond um, as they would to other things or you will palliate uh, their uh, secondary adverse events, enabling them to stay on immunotherapy long enough to achieve, as we say in oncology, curative potential. Uh, so you're, we are there playing this critical supportive role because remember, these reactions are very common. You know, 20 to 30% of patients will develop them. And as we're getting more complex regimens, combination of, uh, you know, PD-1, PD-L1, CTL4 inhibition, we'll see them more and more. The other thing I want to highlight, um, what this uh, paper does, is uh, empower oncologists uh, to listen to their patient and address their needs. Like many oncologists would see those vitiligo-like we call them leukoderma eruption because, right, it's not a true vitiligo. It's not associated with thyroid and uh, diabetes and sideroblastic anemia like the typical vitiligo. But when they do see this vitiligo-like eruption, most oncologists just don't think about anything. They just say, well, that's it. 
to a patient live with it. There's nothing I'm going to do, really. And this paper brings up even simple things, you know, offer the patient, for instance, dermablend or other or color effects camouflage, right? Uh, try putting, uh, you know, our typical anti-inflammatory uh, and corticosteroidal creams use phototherapy. So it's just sort of, even for simple things, which may be flying under the oncologist's radar, it brings them front and center and they are there for either a little bit of alopecia, alopecia areata or vitiligo-like eruption. Uh, it just encourages uh, the clinicians seeing those patients to address those rashes. Do you have any thoughts for us on the use of JAK inhibitors in this uh, in this group of patients experiencing these uh, side effects yeah. of alopecia areata and, and uh, vitiligo? So we wanted to be very rigorous in this paper, right? So we wanted to make this paper, while it is an expert opinion of, say, you know, Dr. Niadetsky, myself, people who manage CTCL and therefore are close to oncology, hematology, we only wanted to put in this paper what has been tried uh, and was shown to have be efficacious in that patient population. So we didn't want this to be a speculative paper. Every recommendation we make in the table or throughout the text comes with a reference from usually a high-profile journal, you know, cohort of patients received this patient's um, uh, undergone treatment and, and there was an improvement, a no improvement, and how much improvement there is. So this is all listed for you. Uh, our resident, Anastasia Montuano, a really star resident, spent countless hours reviewing all the literature. So there is no speculation there. So JAK inhibitors or other treatments that are coming online uh, with biologic therapies, etc., uh, will really need to be tried and tested uh, in that population before we would consider putting them, say, in an updated paper in a year or two. I mean, this is a fast-evolving field. Um, this is something that all specialties recognize that this is important. We need to know how it impacts prognosis of the cancer, response to immunotherapy. Uh, of course, these are things that may lead to drug discontinuation. So there's a lot of people trying different things and managing uh, we want to include only what's in the literature, and JAK inhibitors just haven't made it into the literature yet. So if you were to speculate, it kind of put you on the spot. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily give it. I wouldn't necessarily. Uh, because it's un an unknown. Well, for two reasons. One, it is it is an unknown. The other thing is I, I am a little bit concerned about PANJAC inhibitors. Targeted inhibitors maybe have less of a problem, but PANJAC inhibitors may have increased clotting tendency, right? And those are cancer patients. So they already have some of the risk factors for uh, DVT and PE. And um, even though short-term uh, efficacy based on clinical trials have not showed increased risk of malignancy, uh, in some of the populations, it was discussed whether they, you know, there might be a risk of lymphoma or not. Uh, so I think um, uh, we need to see really how uh, these medications perform in different patient populations before we reach out to them and use them, especially if we have viable alternatives, which I think for most of the treatments we do. All right. And the other point that you make very clearly is with regard to don't assume that a maculopapular rash is a maculopapular rash. It, right. It may be something else in evolution. Right. And I think actually most dermatologists are very comfortable with that, right? All of us, I'm sure, 
in the hospital have seen uh, a patient with quote-unquote simple macular papular rash subsequently evolving especially into Stevens-Johnson's or drug eruption is an, uh, is an affiliate systemic symptoms uh, syndrome, right? Dress syndrome. Because for dress, you start with macular papular rash, but then it quickly evolves to become with edema, lymphadenopathy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think it just highlights uh, that for a number of those eruptions, close follow-up and management are critical uh, for those patients. So can you give me some ideas to the oncological use of the immune checkpoint inhibitors? Is this a is this a short-term therapy, long-term therapy, end goal? I mean, when we see these cutaneous side effects out a year or two yeah. developing, are these people still on drug or is it from the exposure yeah. to the drug? Usually they, these people are still on drug and they're needing the drug. Of course, if they are on monotherapy, then it takes longer, you know, months for them to develop it. If they are on combination therapy, such as ipinilumab, nivolumab, these cutaneous side effects come up very fast. Uh, but the issue is you just need to empower your oncologist to give as much treatment as possible. And of course, a lot of those therapies are still in clinical trials. So we're still learning how much to give. Our And, and every cancer is going to be different. The goal in oncology is to make a cancer a chronic disease just like a diabetes, just like a heart failure. So how long do you treat heart failure? Well, you treat heart failure for as long as it's there and as long as the patient is alive. Some of my patients with melanoma, we know they have disease, we know they have nodules, and we're less bothered on it, and we just keep giving them immunotherapy without interruption, managing it essentially like a chronic disease. So I think we're going to see more and more these drugs given for a longer period of time, keeping our patient alive, making cancer a chronic disease, and we need to be there to support the entire medical team because skin adverse reactions are number one. Well, at 30% or yes. higher, yes, it's clear that... We all need to know this. <laughs> right, we're, we, and we are going to see it. Yeah, and, and, and as I say, I was just surprised. I think we've published this paper in GCMS, and shortly after, I'm seeing that JAD is catching up, and they're publishing uh, their papers, and CME is on the same topic too. One thing I like about our paper is that we were actually not limited by word limit. I would not be able to tell the full story, detailed story, in 2,500 words. Uh, we actually took much longer time, provide more elaborate, extensive tables, more sort of a practical guide that anybody really, be it a community dermatologist or even an oncologist who now wants to develop an interest in managing those skin eruptions can, can take and follow. So practical for sure. The tables being very, very important. You include some pictures, um, uh, not, yeah. not the highlight of the paper, but but some pictures outlining the things that, uh, that that you're describing. So with regard to this paper, is there anything else you learned um, or any anything from, you know, September, uh, October, when we yeah. published this to today um, yeah. that uh, is new or changed or th things you want to emphasize? Well, the field is not moving that fast. So we're not really evolving within a matter of months. Within a matter of years, I think, you know, it, it is worthy to do an update of this work every couple of years because we have discussions with the, there's something called MedOnc list uh, server of all the 
quote-unquote skin turnists that participate and we hear about interesting cases that come to our mailbox uh, so like you know there are discussions saying you know okay Donna Farber people really prefer say IL-23 inhibitors over IL-17 and obviously never anti-TNF inhibitors for managing of those patients because of the safety so there's those rumors and then people try to put cases together uh, to put registries to look at what treatments work like you've mentioned there are certain drugs that are coming in on the market uh, you know, say IL-23 inhibitor, tildrakizumab, uh, JAK inhibitors. Uh, obviously, in in months to years, we're going to know more about how our patients respond to those things. Uh, we're going to learn more in in months and years to come about the prognostic value of all those uh, skin eruptions. We already know about vitiligo and variety of other eruptions, but what about others? And sometimes we also there are people wondering, discerning whether certain skin eruptions are um, caused truly by immunotherapy versus they are unmasked by immunotherapy. For instance, bullous pemphigoid, which is prevalent in elderly patients, many of those are uh, patients with those cancers, after receiving uh, immunotherapy getting bullous pemphigoid, are they really getting it as a true side effects of a medication or it's just being unmasked uh, in this patient population? So all those questions are active research, but I don't have, thankfully, I think the paper... Uh, actually will stand on its own and be valid uh, for the next uh, probably 12 to 15 months. All right. Well, um, I look forward to receiving the update. Thank you. All <laughs> we right. will be very happy to. Yeah, great. Well, thank you again for taking the time to to go through the paper with us. And I really do think it's uh, it's something that it's a, it's a nice translation of information from the academic, academic world to the clinician in the community. So it was great. So um, is there something else? Yeah, I actually just want to highlight something else, um, which is in the same realm of immunotherapy, uh, is the use of antibiotics. Uh, it's, it, it didn't make into this paper uh, because it was not necessarily in the scope of the paper. But the other thing for all community dermatologists that we need to be aware of is we must not give patients who are going to undergo immunotherapy for their cancer any systemic antibiotics within one to two months period prior to treatment because uh, that actually alters microbiome and uh, in a such a way that makes the patient invariably not respond to these immunotherapies and succumb to the disease. So um, uh, I think this is something that we'll need to be aware. Maybe we can follow up with a letter to the editor. But one of the critical issues, do not give antibiotics to patients who are going to receive immunotherapy one to two months prior to. And what about for the time that they're on therapy? Yeah. That could be years, you were saying. Right. So it's a bit controversial, but apparently their papers are saying that once the patient's immune system is primed, so one to two months after immunotherapy, they are safe to receive systemic oral antibiotics. But apparently, increasingly, it's a big issue in oncology research now. Antibiotics are detrimental one to two months before immunotherapy, and they're even studying stools and microbiome of gut microbiome of patients um, who are responding versus not responding. And I think in not so distant future, this is the area where stool transplantation will be actively used very frequently um, to modify the microbiome of patients to make them more responsive to immunotherapy treatment.
Well, let's hope they don't get infections in that month or two before immunotherapy. Would they would they hold the onset of uh, their uh, immunotherapy if they had an infection in the two months prior? Yeah, it's always a tough choice. But, you know, I mean, we I'm talking, of course, as a dermatologist, right, uh, where we treat acne, we treat folliculitis, we lead, we treat some other things. But the key thing is, in that case, if you could use topical treatments, um, you know, say mepiracin, fusidin, etc. But at all times, if possible, avoid uh, systemic antibiotics. All if right. You, if you can't, if you, you can. can't avoid, you you have to give. But if you can, try to get away with topical or other measures. But we're not, you know, thankfully, we're probably not going to be involved in that decision. Really, this will be an oncologist will be mostly making that decision because I can't imagine patients coming in to tell us, oh, I can't take that antibiotic because I'm going to go on a, an immunotherapy. But it's a good point. And, yeah. and not only that, but it's a good reason to treat with caution as we go along yes. um, in, 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 and manage these patients. I fully agree. All right. Well, thank you very much. That was enlightening and will inform our clinical decisions. So uh, thank you again for, for taking the time to join me. Really appreciated the conversation. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure. That was Dr. Ivan Lipinoff, an assistant professor and director of research in the Division of Dermatology at McGill University Health Center. This was a very interesting discussion. And I think the one thing that I really want to emphasize is that this is the kind of article that shows us the influence that dermatologists can have when managing oncological patients. And I would urge you, as Dr. Litvinoff, I'm sure would as well, to phone up your friendly oncologist and offer to help him manage these patients because it can make a huge difference into their long-term care. Well, that's it for this episode of JCMS Author Interviews Podcast. I hope uh, once again that you enjoyed your time with us. I'm hoping also that you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and share this with your colleagues and on uh, your social media. I'm Kirk Barber. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, be good to each other.